When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Beatles' legendary Carnegie Hall concerts in 1964 were down to the persistence of American music promoter Sid Bernstein, whose determination to see the band play in America kick-started the British invasion. In this week's episode, we speak to his lifelong colleague and friend, Mel Frymark, who was lucky enough to witness the group's recording of Come Together in the Abbey Road studios. I'm Ellen Kerwin. And I'm Laura Davis. And this is Beatles City. So Ellen Mel was there from the very beginning in America when the Beatles were already huge over here in the UK, but ordinary Americans didn't really have any idea of what was coming. So what was that like for her? Yeah, exactly. So her and Sid really championed the Beatles and they knew how amazing they were before anyone else in America did. So she knew that Sid really put his neck on the line to try and make them as big in America as they were in the UK and secure them some of the biggest gigs around. And did she spend a lot of time with the Beatles? Well, it was sort of in passing. So she'd, you know, speak to a lot of them on the phone and try and sort things out. But she also recalled a um, a time when she saw John Lennon in Central Park. And she said it was really just like, you know, she was talking to an old friend um, and it, it was just weeks before he was shot dead. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help us grow and reach more Beatles fans, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the Beatles City Podcast. So obviously this year, um, Sid would be 100. He died back in 2013 when he was 95. But, um, you know, this would be a big year for him. Talk to me about back when you you two first met. Well... Sid, I, I, I will always carry a little torch for Sid. One of the kindest, most generous men in the world. Everyone loved Sid. The Beatles loved Sid. Everybody loved Sid. I first met Sid when I worked uh, in the Beatles New York office. I vaguely remember it, but I think he had come in to have a meeting with Nat Weiss. Nat Weiss was Brian Epstein's uh, U.S. business partner. And uh, he had come into the office to meet with uh, Nat at that time and probably the first time I met Sid. You know, we didn't see Sid very often at at that point, but I guess as usual, he was always trying to, because this was after their Shea Stadium uh, shows in 1965 and 1966. So this was after that. I think he was continually trying to book another show. What was it like to work in in the Beatles office back then when, you know, they were at the hype, they were, you know, the biggest that they were? It was quite amazing to work there in that office. I was still in school when I started and I worked part time. I used to take this, the New York subway into Manhattan to go to work there in the afternoon after school. I'd go and work there for like, you know, four hours and whatnot. And they clearly saw something in me there. It was a very small office. 
this, no fanfare, no nothing. You know, it, it was quite amazing because uh, I was a kid, you know, and they saw something in me. And as peop other people left, they moved me up and I got a, a full-time job. But we had so many amazing things. So I, I started working there in, say, 1967. I was a fan, of course, because I'd been to both the Shea Stadium concerts, but I was cool. I was not going to lose my cool there, although the Beatles never came up to the office. <laughs> Anytime they were in town, they were they were not because they had stopped touring, you know, in 1966. And so they really if they came into New York, they came separately or two at a time, but they never came up to the office. But we did have contact with them, certainly through the channels that we did to get to Apple office in Savile Row. And what was it that actually took place in the office? You know, what type of work would you do in the Beatles office in New York? You know, the U.S. fan club came out of there and, and certainly Frida can, Frida Kelly can correct me if I'm wrong, but the U.S. fan club would be second to the original uh, U.K. fan club that she supervised. So we all sort of, in a sense, worked under her in, in, in that case. Whatever, whatever we did here in, in, in the United States as a whole. It was quite huge. And when I first went to work there, they were looking for people to come in and help sort through the mail because there would be sacks and sacks and sacks of, of mail from the post office. And plus, there were so many thousands and thousands of members that there were photos and updates and things that had to go out and there were mailings and this and that. But as time went on, you know, I ultimately became assistant director of the fan club. One of my jobs was because the Beatles were still uh, releasing records, even though they weren't touring. One of my jobs was every Monday around four or five o'clock, my job was to get their chart reports for their records. So I had to call Billboard, Record World and the like and Cashbox. And I'd have to call and get the chart reports to see where they listed on the charts. And then, you know, in those days, we didn't have fax machines or anything. We had a telex machine and our telex went right into the Apple office in Savile Row. And so my job, once I got the chart reports, okay, number one with a bullet or number two with a bullet, whatever it was, I would do like a memo over the telex machine and indicate what it was. I mean, there were a lot of different things I did. You know, I answered the phone. I had to deal with fans. I had to deal with whatever came through the door. Fans never came up there. I don't think people knew it was there. But being the young sleuth that I was and still am, I found out there was an office there and went up to see what it was like. And that's how I ended up getting the job. I saw the office, I just walked in and somebody there said to me, oh, are you here to be interviewed? I said, sure. <laughs> so as fate would have it, they hired me and there was nobody there. You know, it was a very small office. And Nat Weiss at the time also managed groups like The Circle and anything that Apple did, we helped on with like Mary Hopkins and Billy Preston and you know, that kind of thing. One of my favorite moments was the time when um, they were releasing the song back in the USSR. And they shipped the single to us before it was released because in the New York office, and especially Nat was Brian's partner, we had to have the songs even though it wasn't released. So when it came in, we played it right away and 
we were all dancing around the office. <laughs> it was quite something. I mean, that's the way we, we got the single. I mean, they posted it. They may have sent it by courier. I don't recall, but it, it they sent it to us before it was released over there. That's how we heard it. It was quite something. I can imagine, especially, you know, with it being the first time you ever heard it. Yeah. And I also I also remember sending telexes over there. And remember, I think back then, London might have been six hours ahead uh, of us in New York. And I remember sending telexes over at five, six o'clock at night in New York. And one time they answered me back. One of the, some of the boys happened to be passing by the telex machine men because they had a studio in the basement there at, at, uh, at Apple and Savile Row and they were recording something and uh, they would send me silly sayings back on, on the telex. It's <laughs> it pretty funny. That's how I knew because they were closed. The, the office was closed, but they were there and they, they would uh, jokingly, uh, Telex me back. That was pretty. That was a lot of fun. But you know, I was always cool. They very seldom called on the phone, and they never came up there. Uh, one time, Ringo was in New York for something, and he wanted to go to you know there was a famous uh, children's toy store called Fao Schwartz, and he wanted to go there to buy some toys for his son Zach. And so they sent me to go with him. <laughs> I'm not a bodyguard. <laughs> so, I, you know, so we, we went to, we did have someone with us, but we went to uh, FAO Schwartz in a car. It's all I remember. And we didn't call ahead because today I represent many celebrities uh, in doing my public relations and marketing business here in the theater and movies and film and television. And, you know, today you call ahead and mm -hmm. say so-and-so's coming and make arrangements. But in those days... We just showed up. So, you know, you say they didn't come to the office often, but you still had dealings with them, obviously, on a day-to-day -day basis. Would you say you still got to know them? Would you, you would you still say you felt close to them, even though they didn't come into the office much? Well, I went to London a number of times, and there was one time I went over. It was in uh, July of 1969 when they were put the finishing. They were doing putting the finishing touches on the Abbey Road album for release. And I, one of the things that I was was approved for me to do. Uh, and I, I must interject and say that one of my favorite people and a mentor, a great mentor to me was Derek Taylor. He was just so wonderful to me, whether it was on the phone, in the post, or whether I was over there. He was so welcoming and always gave me advice. And I, I miss him terribly. And I can't say enough good things about Derek Taylor. I don't know if I, I he just gave me so much good advice certainly in the PR department, because when I worked for the Beatles, people say to me, oh, you did PR for the Beatles? And I'm like, no. <laughs> in those days, people didn't know what PR was. It really didn't come into its own until maybe well into the 70s when I went to work in a PR office. And that's how I moved on. But I was over in London and I was scheduled to go into the studio to maybe take a few photos for the fan club because they needed some updated photos. But you might recall that in early July in 1969, John and Yoko and their children were in Scotland and they were involved in a car accident. 
And so John had to have stitches and they were in hospital and whatnot. So I was sort of just waiting around because they were waiting for him to come back and to also feel better. And we didn't know when they'd come back into the studio. So finally, Derek called me and he said, you're going tomorrow. I said, okay, great. So off I went <laughs> to Abbey Road Studios and they were, you know, they were putting some finishing touches on stuff and I got, you know, some photos and they were very, very nice. And, you know, I must say in, in, in later years when after they broke up and John and Yoko moved to New York and they lived in Greenwich Village, I was also working in public relations at that point, working for a theatrical PR company, and we opened a Broadway show called Lenny, which was a play about the great com American comedian Lenny Bruce. And I invited John and Yoko to attend because I thought, oh, John would just love the whole Lenny Bruce thing. And they came. I lived not far at the time from where John and Yoko lived at the famous Dakota residence on West 72nd Street in uh, New York City. The last time I saw John was I was bicycling through Central Park and he was sitting on a bench with baby Sean. And I saw him and I thought, oh, should I bother him? Should I stop? And I thought, no, I think I'll stop. And he was he welcomed Welcome the conversation. We chatted. He was minding the baby. I left him. I got on my bike and that was the last time I saw him. And that was, I'd say, probably the summer of 1980 before he passed. I'll never forget that. That's such a sort of poignant moment. And oh, it was awful. It was awful. When I heard it on the news, 11 o'clock at night, it was just awful. Then my phone started to ring and it was, it was awful. Yeah. I never got, I never got over it to uh, this day. Yeah. A lot of fans will, sh will share that feeling with you and, you know, it's something they'll remember the, the exact time where they were when they found out the news. What would you say is, you know, was one of your favorite memories? I know that you were you were in the recording session when um, they recorded Come Together for their final album. Would that be up there or have you got many other memories that sort of stick out for you? Well, that was certainly very, very special. And interestingly enough, looking at some of uh, the photos in later years, and I mean not five years, I mean many years. Uh, looking at the photos, obviously at the time, people have asked me this many times, but at that time there was no way to even have an inkling that there were any problems within the band. But I see it in my photos. I see the distance. I see them all in different places and they weren't really, they didn't seem to be communicating that well with each other, but I was there to do a job. You know, especially when you're, you're a young teenager, you're not privy to so much. But looking back, and certainly the pictures tell a story, you could see the distance. I didn't feel it, but I could see it. But, you know, John had just gotten back from his, his accident. He had had stitches, I think, under his chin, and he had his beard and everything. And I brought him um, 
uh, some white flowers and uh, he appreciated that. And, you know, I did see John from time to time. The others I didn't see, I think many years later, I ran into George at a West End show there at the interval. They had many people back in the um, VIP suite and I saw George there for like five minutes. But not unlike Frida, I mean, we didn't see them. They went on to do what they had to do. So you, you touched on before that what what you did, you wouldn't necessarily call it PR. Um, but what, what would you call it if you had to summarize what you were to the Beatles back then? What would you say your job role was? Well, I was assistant director of the U.S. Fan Club and I helped facilitate their work and the work of Apple at the time. Back then, when you when you were working very much in the it, did you know that you know there was this much hysteria around it? Could you feel the sort of momentum, or were you almost blindfolded and in a bit of a bubble? Oh no, no, not at all. Because remember, I mean, I went to both of the Shea Stadium concerts in August of 1965 and 1966. Shea Stadium held like 55,000 people. I was there, and this is obviously before I even had a glimmer that I would be working in their New York office. It was never even crossed my mind. You know, I was a fan just like everybody else. But there I was, it, it, at Shea Stadium and 55,000 screaming people. And of course, me, I wasn't screaming. I was upset because I couldn't hear them. <laughs> I wanted to hear it. And if you look at any of the, the footage from that those shows, you see that the boys are, are laughing because they know nobody can hear them. It was, it, you know, John was joking. They were like, oh, my God, this is crazy. It was quite astounding, you know, and years later, I found out that people like Billy Joel and Stephen Van Zandt and people I've come to know and, and or work with from time to time were there. And, you know, we were all kids and they were all there, but the musicians were there looking for Sid to book them. <laughs> well, it, yeah, I, I mean, you said, you know, you're really upset that you couldn't hear them over all the screaming girls. But so to go from that to then being in the room while they're recording some of, you know, one of the most popular songs, you know, for the album. How, how did that feel? As I said, I always knew that I had to be professional. Even at a young age, I was not going in there as a fan, and I somehow have carried that through my entire life because I've, I, as I said, I've worked with many, many and continue to work with many, many famous people over the years, and I never, like fangirled or anything you know i was ne i never did that i was always cool i thought okay i have to be cool because i wanted to be taken seriously i didn't want anyone to think oh she's just another fan it wasn't me i knew i had something more to do i didn't know what it was but clearly there were more important things for me later in my life yeah but as i said Working there, we knew the size and the scope mm -hmm. of what was going on. You know, we, we knew the size and the scope. But sitting in an office building in the heart of Times Square, there was nothing around us that said that. When I would go to London, to Savile Row, the fans would hang out 
outside of Savile Row. Fans, they were just parked out there, hoping that the Beatles would come in to the recording studio. Yeah. So what was it like to have a professional relationship with them? Then you said, you know, at, at times you were always you were always aware that you didn't want to be a fangirl and you wanted to be taken in the sort of professional like from them. What was that relationship like? I have to say, that, I mean, I didn't have the kind of relationship with them that Frida Kelly had mm -hmm. because she, you know, she was with them from early 60s before they were famous. She would travel in the van with them to gigs and stuff like that when they were nobody. But I didn't have that. I, I came in at a time when they were at their height. And of course, nobody knew 50 years later, whatever, that they, and they didn't know. And they, you know, Paul and, and certainly the surviving uh, Beatles say that they could never have imagined what has happened. No one could have predicted this. And I, I have to say that in reference to Sid Bernstein, if Sid had not had that handshake across the pond with Brian Epstein to bring them to America, the music business might be totally different today. Absolutely. I mean, touching a little bit on Sid's but we would I'd like to talk to you a lot more about him. What what was it, you know, that you know about him that was the spark and what was it that people shouldn't really know about him? As I said, Sid was the nicest, sweetest, caring individual. And what people don't know is, well, people know him as the man who brought the Beatles to America and the father of the British invasion, which came after. What people don't know really, is that he represented Tony Bennett, the Rolling Stones, Fats Domino, Tito Puente, Judy Garland, many, many people in the early days. And he booked, he, he gave Tony Bennett his start. He booked him at Carnegie Hall or someplace. And he started Tony Bennett off on his career many, many years ago. And also, Sid was the first white promoter to produce acts at the Apollo, which is uh, the famed uh, uh, theater in Harlem. And also, I'm sure everybody certainly fondly remembers the fabulous James Brown. And James Brown was quoted as, as saying that people don't realize that Sid was in the forefront of race relations in the 1960s because he was the only white promoter booking black acts. And that says a lot. I mean, Sid, Sid really did so much more before and after the Beatles. I mean, he, he's known for, you know, the rascals and the young rascals. And of course, he's worked with Lenny. Kravitz and Stevie Van Zandt and uh, the Moody Blues and Paul Anka and Dick Clark and I mean the list is endless. And what was it and, do you know that that drawn Sid to the Beatles? What was it that he, you know, why is it he wanted them so badly in America? I don't know if it's still in print, but Sid had written a book called It's Sid Bernstein Calling, where he talks about everything from bringing the Beatles and, and, and all of the people uh, I've just mentioned. He always called himself a hunch player. 
he would, he was very aware of what was going on in England. And when he heard about the Beatles, he decided to follow up and he continued relentlessly to call Brian Epstein's house. And he got to know Brian Epstein's mom, uh, Queenie, very well. And actually, I believe that they invited Sid to, because, you know, Sid's been to Liverpool many, many, many times. He called Liverpool my home away from home. And he was invited to speak at uh, Brian's uh, memorial in 1998. I think that's when they renamed uh, the theater there, the Brian Epstein Theater. Mm -hmm. And then in 2004... Sid was went back to Liverpool and he was named a cultural ambassador for Liverpool. He loved Liverpool. If he could have gone every year, he would go. But, you know, in later years, he wasn't well. And it, traveling over there in 2004 was difficult at best. But he was insistent to go. But he didn't follow the trend. But he knew talent when he saw it. He just had a hunch. And he made it happen. You know, we're all forever grateful. And uh, I don't know what else to say. I mean, he's he was an amazing man. I adored him. I miss him terribly. And August 12th, had he lived, would have been his 100th birthday. Yes. So your relationship with Sid, particularly to, towards the end of his life, how would you say it was? Oh, I, I talked to him almost every day. Uh, in later years, he would call me and he would uh, say, oh, I have a new restaurant. Let's go check this place out because he was a food nut. He knew where to find the best food everywhere. He knew every restaurant and everyone knew him. He loved everything from good deli food to ice cream, chocolate, French food, you name it. He knew every great place. He would come. He said, oh, I'm going to take you to this new place I found. And he uh, he loved his food. And, you know, but when he, he got to a point where he uh, it was hard for him to get around, I would always go up to his apartment, hang out with him. And, you know, I loved talking to him on the phone because he always had a great story. And I became very close with all his children. He has six children. And now he's got uh, probably at least eight grandchildren now. He lived long enough to see uh, several of his grandchildren, which I was glad he was able to, to do. But he had great stories. He loved life. He would get calls because his phone number was listed in directory assistance. And so he would, he never knew who was going to call him. He'd get phone calls from fans in Japan, all over the world. And he'd talk to them. They'd call him up and he would just be jabbering away. He loved everybody. He would answer every letter, every phone call in the street. Everybody came up to him. He would sign an autograph. He was a prince. What can I tell you? He was a prince among men. Wow. I mean, you, you've just mentioned that, you know, he loved telling stories. Can you remember one that you particularly loved? One of the stories he told that blew you away almost? I mean, he'd tell me funny stories about uh, food, mostly about food. <laughs> He loved his chocolate. He loved his chocolate. So every time I found an interesting, some kind of designer chocolate, I'd pick it up and bring it to him. Yes. Can you remember? <laughs> he loved his. De he loved his designer. Uh, his designer chocolate. Oh, but also I should mention I worked for many years with a band called Rain, a tribute to the Beatles. 
They're a very famous American Beatles tribute band. And actually, uh, I think it was 2007, they finally agreed to participate in Beatles Week in, in Liverpool. Yeah. So that was the first time I'd been back to Liverpool in quite some time. So I went with them. Uh, we had a great time. But when they toured here... I, I finally brought Sid to see them when they first opened in New York, and he was blown away by them. And so he made it his business to go to as many shows in the New York area that he could. Well, we go to whether, wherever, whether it was Boston or Philadelphia, and I got Sid seats and, you know, good seats. And people, he would just sit there, and people, fans in the audience saw him, and they made a, 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 they formed a line. They all wanted a picture with him and they wanted his autograph. And we're talking, you know, in the last 10, 15 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is going on. It got to a point where every rain show that Sid attended, he was introduced by the band and the audience stood up and would not stop applauding for 10, 15 minutes. The respect and admiration that the fans have for Sid Bernstein is astounding and unwavering. It would bring me to tears to see this wherever Sid was. I went with Sid. One day he called me and he said, I'm going up to Woodstock. There's a hippie fest concert. Do you want to go with me? I said, sure. So we drove up to Woodstock, the famous Woodstock area. And there was a concert with a whole lot of, you know, 60s bands or what's left of them anyway. And of course, we were sitting there and people, again, they come up, they see him, they line up for pictures, whatnot. You know, afterwards, we went backstage. He went to say hello to uh, Eric Burden and Jack Bruce and people like that that were there. The respect, again, even from the stars, from whether they're British or American, the stars that Sid helped launch careers, they adored him. Can you can you remember the, the very first time you met Sid or, you know, around about when you first started to get to know him? Could you take me back? Frankly, I didn't see Sid for many years. And it wasn't until many years later that I really became close to Sid because our paths took us in different directions. And how was it that you started getting close again after after many years? One time when I started to work with Rain, a tribute to the Beatles, I called Sid on the phone. I hadn't talked to him in a while and I called him up and I just told him I was working with this band and would he like to come and see them? And he said yes. And then once he did, he and I fell back in love and... We were inseparable. <laughs> That's lovely. And, and I know it's, it's a little bit off topic at the moment, but it's it's a question I've almost got to ask. Do, do you have a favourite Beatle? You know, do you have a favourite band member that really sort of stole your heart? Of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> my my favourite Beatle was John. The fact that I got to know him somewhat was very special and meant the world to me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got to know the others, but I always felt that I had more of a connection to John because he lived here. I saw him from time to time. 
in New York City back in the day, but he was most special to me. Yeah, he has a place in your heart. He sure does. He'll always have a special place in my heart. And as I said, I've never gotten over his his death. Would you still now like to see, not too long ago, I got to see Paul McCartney perform in the cavern, which was definitely a bucket list moment for myself. But would you like to see them perform, will Paul perform again? Well, I've seen Paul perform here at Madison Square Garden in New York many times. He gives a wonderful show. He is something else. That's all I can say. Unfortunately, I was just in Liverpool and I arrived, I think, three days after Paul and James Corden did their carpool karaoke. So I just missed them. Oh, no. So close. <laughs> yeah, so close, but yet so far. But uh, but that's okay. I mean, I've seen Paul from time to time at events, but I've never, you just don't get close enough to even say hello or anything. But that's okay. I uh, still hold a very special place in my heart for them all. That goes without question. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me, Mel. I'm really glad that we've got to have this chat. Oh, listen, me too. If you need anything else, let me know. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Goodbye. Take care. Bye.